Welcome back to the Hey Guys Boys podcast. We're so happy that you're here. Here on episode five, I am joined by Peter, who is a friend that I have met through the advocacy work that Hagar's Voice does, and I know you're going to enjoy this conversation. This podcast exists in order to raise the voices of survivors, and we believe that purely by hearing their stories, we will be changed for the better. We will grow, we will be challenged, we will be inspired, we will be moved to empathy, And that is no exception with Peter. What is so fun, though, is that each survivor has their own desires when they raise their voice. And so today's conversation is a completely different conversation than the ones we've had before. And I think you're going to enjoy it. Be blessed by Peter. Be taught by Peter. Peter. Thank you so much for being in here today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I love our conversations. They are always what I would consider to be spicy. And they always push me. Your thinking pushes me in all of the best ways. So I am eager to record this conversation. And I have, I'll be honest, no idea where it's going. (laughs) But I'm eager to record it because my uh, own experience of sitting with your thoughts has been so helpful and so informative and so challenging in all the best ways that I want others uh, to get to know (laughs) you and also be pushed by your thoughts. So thanks for being game for coming in here. (laughs) My pleasure. (laughs) So uh, we, we absolutely want to get to the spot where you can tell the piece of your story that you would like to tell. But I'm just curious, right off the bat, What is it that made you want to come in here and have this conversation and give me an opportunity to push record? I, um, as a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, I uh, understand the lifelong challenges associated with that. And the, um, the, the church, which was so eager to dismiss what had occurred to me and dismiss me, in fact, as a person and want to do um, hide that information was, you know, has truly been something that has left me, uh, it, it, it has defined me in many ways, um, mm-hmm. initially as a, as a victim, then as a survivor, and then um, as an advocate. And now, as someone who just simply wants to hold up a mirror to the church and say, uh, essentially, from an outside perspective, as someone who no longer really identifies as Christian, um, but to be able to hold up a mirror to Christianity and say, look, you're not uh, the shining light guiding star that you believe you are when you deal with uh sexual abuse and with women and children in in ways that are um anything less than loving truly and i i i i can't help but notice the irony that you know jesus entire message was really about love and specifically about loving children and widows and people who can't care for themselves and how the church is um actually the christian church is at the forefront of harming uh people within their congregations and yet 
see it as completely defensible or as, you know, just part of the cost involved in growing the Christian church. And uh, with no real, you know, recognition of the harm that that has for the people who have either by choice or unwittingly been steeped in that tradition. When you're a child, you have no say in spirituality or choices related to spirituality. You know, your parents take you to church three times a week on Sunday. That's that's what you grow up thinking is normal. When when you learn at church that you have the answers, that that you are right, that everyone else is doomed and going to hell and these are the rules we must follow and 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 because because we do, we are saved and we're in this very small elite group of people. You know, not only does that set up a very dangerous precedent, but it sets up this concept in Christianity which permeates everything, which is this notion of us against them, mm-hmm. especially within fundamentalism. You believe that, you know, you are the only people who have the answers, the answers, mm-hmm. the ones that, you know, everyone is searching for that, you know, give you a golden ticket to heaven and this, you know, lovely eternal life with streets paved with gold and walls of emeralds, you know, like these these are amazing promises. Christianity does a great job of, you know, the carrot and the stick motivating you to you know some amazing afterlife while beating you with this stick in your current life it's so twisted and perverse in many ways and yet this is what this is what church leadership has done to christianity i am not a hater of christianity i am uh not a supporter however of christian leadership because I think it has failed in all ways to grasp the concepts of the Gospels. It has failed to grasp that, you know, doing away with the law means that, you know, the God that we recognize as the God of the Old Testament is really kind of irrelevant in Christianity from that point on, historically, yes, but irrelevant, because Jesus comes to teach a new way. And it's 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 funny because I can talk about sexual abuse about the church in ways that sound you know I, I I do understand both sides having having been steeped in that tradition and now being out of it but I can see how the way the church managed my circumstance of sexual abuse has left a far greater impact on my life and a negative one at that than the sexual abuse ever would have done on its own independently Mm -hmm. so it was it was the church's response to the abuse and then the action or in some cases the inaction that Mm -hmm. they took following the disclosure of that information and those have had a far more damaging effect over a lifetime than the sexual abuse ever would have had independently yeah yeah that's a powerful sentence just to be clear for those that don't know your story, your uh, childhood sexual abuse happened inside of the church. So it was clergy that originally abused. And then when you make a statement, go ahead. It wasn't clergy, actually. It was a, it was a, a lay youth leader. In my case. Well... Okay, you know, so here we, we go. So, exactly. Okay, so if you're, are you okay going down that train of thought? Sure. 
Okay, because I would say that in working with various survivors, or as, as we are beginning to call them light bringers, the ones who come forward and disclose that are bringing light to these dark spaces, I have recognized that some of the survivors struggle with the definition of clergy, some struggle with like wrestle with the definition of sex and some are sexual and some struggle with the definition of abuse. So I, I find that so interesting that you would put someone who I perceive to be in a position of spiritual authority, not because they are paid or not paid, but they were given to you in relationship in this position of spiritual authority. They would have been communicated to you as a safe person who was here for your spiritual care, who you could trust and walk through life with. So whether or not they received a paycheck or they did not receive a paycheck to me does not define whether or not Peter at that age would have defined that person as clergy or not clergy or Peter at this age maybe is the key because is there any possibility that that relationship was not spiritual authority in your life what a question so i i have never considered lay members of any congregation clergy no matter no matter what position they hold i i've only ever considered clergy uh people who specifically went through religious theological training that's okay. what i consider clergy because i don't think that most people filling pews have that level of biblical knowledge or application perspective yeah sure right so sure. so there's a reason we you know have to refer to people as the reverend so and so or whatever because the title you know it, it took work to, and effort and understanding to receive that title so a person so it speaks to their credentials is what you're saying it absolutely does and a lay leader a lay leader's understanding of the bible understanding of spirituality understanding of how to apply that in your life i don't think they have the same kind of credentials if you will in they that. don't it's true that's a fact that's just a fact however now you're dabbling with in my opinion the definition of abuse so whatever happened to you uh is you have defined as abuse but yeah. I would say that inside of the conversation around clergy sexual abuse, there is understanding of power dynamics. Yeah. So whether or not someone is paid by the religious institution or someone is credentialed by a religious institution, there are these power dynamics that are at play. Mm -hmm. So that was why I would refer to a youth worker who is still a volunteer and uncredentialed still as because to a child or a youth who is brought into the care of one of these people, they would be purported by the religious institution as someone who is a member of spiritual authority. So, 100%, 100%. okay, so that's why I would actually consider what you experienced because it was inside of the church and the power differential between a kid and a youth leader that to me would still be inside of that uh 
definition of clergy sexual abuse. Yeah, well, I mean, you raise an interesting, you raise an interesting point. And I am, I am looking at it now as a middle-aged man, not as a 13-year-old boy in that circumstance. So yes, my perspective is at, at this point in life defined by um you know a very different viewpoint but at that time in life yes these were men who i was taught to respect obey believe adhere um you know they were they were safe and they were uh they were godly which meant that they were supposed to be better than other men were and um because christianity by its very definition requires that you be different that you uh you know the admonishment to not hide your light under a bushel to shine that to to, to show to the world how your life is different um and so you know those were the things those are the kinds of of uh, messaging that you're that that I was being given as a kid. So as a kid, yeah, this guy was a safe this this man was a safe man. What 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 transpired while terrifying, you know, also was wildly confusing because because it was happening in a context with spiritual overtones. You know, sexual abuse outside of the church is one thing yeah. but sexual abuse with the overtones of spirituality are is more is more uh, damaging in the long term there's more uh mythology and storytelling in that and there's a lot more you know the, it's it, it produces an environment which allows for scapegoating or in my case insidious victim blaming while allowing the perpetrator uh, you know a, a free pass because when in my case when the perpetrator was after the disclosure of the, of the abuse um came out which was about five years after i was abused i was 18 when it was disclosed and um the perpetrator in front of the senior pastor at the time was confronted with the allegation and he uh he said yes he'd done that like he agreed to the allegation entirely um there was no defense that it hadn't taken place it absolutely had so um you know when when that disclosure was made and the man said yeah i did this in front of the senior pastor and one other witness you know my sort of assumption as a kid um who has been taught that you must you know believe these men that these men who are you know supposedly better and more spiritually elite that's why they're in these positions within organized religion you know that these men were going to do the right thing they were the very men who harmed me the most not only did they turn on me quickly and protect the perpetrator but you know then they subjected me to a series of of abuses one of the things that i had to endure was pastoral counseling and you know pastors for example have no no 
credentialing. They, they have no credentialing in psychology or in therapy or in, you know, any of those kinds of things. So they're not actually in a position to be counseling on anything other than the, the Bible, frankly. And what occurred in those sessions was that I was informed, you know, that I was, as a result of the abuse, I was filled with demons and they needed to be exercised and that they were now ruling my life. Whereas the man who had sexually abused me had, after he had confessed in front of the pastor, had asked for, you know, had asked God for forgiveness for his sins. And as far as the senior pastor and the witness were concerned, it was a done deal. At that that. He had confessed, that was it, you know, and he goes on to live this, you know, life unchecked, whereas I'm required to go to spiritual counseling, you know, so that I can have these demons exercised. And spiritual counseling was nothing more than victim blaming in a lovely evangelical costume, you know, that uses that language and uses that terminology to further abuse the church at, because at the moment the disclosure occurs, I have come to appreciate churches view victims as a threat mm -hmm. and they are, but not in the way that the church perceives them to be. The church thinks mm -hmm. that their reputation is going to be destroyed, that the reputation of the past at that church is going to be destroyed. The, in, the initial reaction by the church is just abject fear mm -hmm. and to get this person dealt with and out of the way as quickly as possible. And, and yet, and yet that's the exact opposite response that a church needs to take. And in mm -hmm. fact, it's proof of their faithlessness. Mm -hmm. And I use that word very specifically because in a situation where you are confronted with a circumstance, you don't know what to do with. You don't know how to solve it, but you've been confronted with it. You, you have a choice. You can rely on what you know or you can rely on the knowledge of the universe, of God, if that's what you want to call it. Okay. And Christianity requires that you put your faith in that God, and that even in the midst of a trial, when you can't see uh, your way clear through, that God knows that there is a path that you will always land on your feet on the other side. And I, I, when your first response as a church is to blame a victim, to say, no, that didn't happen, or no, that person couldn't possibly have done it, or your first call is to a lawyer or to your insurance company to see if you have coverage or what your next steps need to be, that is not, that is not the love of Jesus that you are professing. That is not the, the love and kindness that is required for children. That is not taking care of the needy. That is making the people who you are called to serve, the problem, so mm -hmm. that you can use them as an excuse to continue to go out and find new congregants. The people who are harmed and left in the wake after incidents like this, the church doesn't seem to, to care about. Like There was no concern over my soul in this process while they were steamrolling over it to save other souls. And so it was like, you know, it's like there's a soul quota for Christians, or at least at the church that I went to. Could I ask a little bit more of a clarifying, uh, because I know some of your story enough to know, I think what you're referring to, I get what you're referring to. So when you say, because part of me is like, my mind is just blown because you actually got a confessor confession out of your abuser. 
So it didn't even require an investigation. So some victims end up trampled over the system, over by the system, because they never actually got someone to corroborate their story. They could not get someone to corroborate their story. You had it, and yet it did not produce care for you. It did not. So a minute ago, you said you can either, you were using the term faithlessness, and you're like, I use that on purpose because church leaders have the opportunity to act on what they know or to act on their faith uh, philosophies. When you're referring to what they know, um, you're not referring to the fact that they knew about your abuse because they know about oh, your abuse. So I'm what is it that about, I'm talking about worldly knowledge? I'm talking, okay. you know, so when you're faced with a problem, like something that could be potentially litigious, you know, your first yeah. call, we as North Americans, the knee jerk call is, you know, you, you, you call your lawyer, but church is very specific to sexual abuse. Their first call will be to their lawyer insurance company. And that's so, so instead of relying, so instead of getting on their knees and praying, these spiritual men who are supposed to be the most elite, you know, of, of our faith, if they're not on their knees praying, asking for clarity, asking for the right path forward, the God honoring, the Jesus centered, yeah. okay. loving yeah. path forward, if that is not their knee jerk response, and their knee jerk response is to go to lawyers and insurance companies, they are acting in a faithless way. They okay. are not acting. Yeah. They are spewing. They are. They are spewing. Uh, the, the way to live. This is, this is, Jesus tells us this is the way to live. So they're great at doing, teaching. They're not great at doing. This is the problem. Mm -hmm. When the rubber hits the road, they rely on worldly and personal instincts, personal knowledge. They are not on their knees praying. Okay. okay. They, it's in, it's in those circumstances at board meetings, at individual, you know, where, where that faithlessness starts to become evident and what is actually in my view what is actually the the crime here is not the cover-up of sexual abuse it's the cover-up of the fact that people are people are not actually living by the faith that they mm. profess mm. they're not living it they're living an absolute lie it's an act that they put on every time it's required but it's not something that is uh, the moment that that is threatened, mm -hmm. the first instinct isn't to go closer towards the God that you mm -hmm. feel supports and mm -hmm. loves you in all the good times. The first instinct is to go in the exact opposite direction mm -hmm. of that. And in doing that, you make, in this particular case, you make victims into the problem you, yeah. you take your religious your religious beliefs then twist the situation the person who needs love and care the most is the person who gets trampled over so that the person who you know caused the harm can be coddled and cared for and and soothed and somehow made invisible so that the rest of the congregation isn't aware that there's a problem that there's an imminent threat to other children not just this one yeah. child yeah. And it becomes this it becomes this power struggle, like the number of times I was told by telling my story or by suing a church that I was and a perpetrator that I was uh, I was harming God's reputation, that I was harming the church. I've always been flabbergasted by that accusation, because the truth is 
in holding up this mirror, I am trying to help the church see what's broken and where it needs to fix itself. Mm -hmm. It can actually be the church that it promises to be. But but current Christianity is is very, very far from that promise. And and so I really want, you know, I really want victims' stories to be heard because I think that they are a guidepost to the church. They're a signpost. They're a way of saying, you know, that way of dealing with this isn't working. You know, the male-centered, um, like the the it just pretending it's not happening, pretending that you can mask it, pretending that you can hide it, pretending that you don't have to report it, pretending that you can cover it up, uh, pretending that you can use sanctimonious words to make it sound less offensive and less bad than it is. These are they're all little tricks in the Christian leader's handbook, which, you know, need to be dispensed with. Like, it, it is, it is, it's kind of terrifying that the state of the Christian church is what it is. And truly, like I, as a victim, I see the, or a survivor, I see that the Christian church is on the brink of irrelevancy. And yet it does have at its very center, uh, a, a, a beautiful promise of a wonderful world. Mm-hmm. It's just church leaders have have taken the power that they are imbued with and they have used it in a lot of cases to harm not to love not to Mm. uphold not to support not to you know people looking in at christianity and the leadership of christianity when scandals happen in the world like the southern baptist convention recently you know People who don't identify as Christian but look at those stories as they come across the news say, why would I ever want to be a Christian? Like, what makes them different? There's nothing different about this. In fact, they're worse than people who don't identify as Christian. There's this, there's this immorality behind the veil that, you know, is preached against. But when you lift the veil, it's just nastiness, you know. The, the real world isn't trying to hide that nastiness. I mean, it's not saying this doesn't happen here. It wholly admits that it does happen there. But Christianity wants to pretend that, you know, they're they're apart from the world, that those issues, this 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 bifurcation, this us against them, which is inherent in Christianity, doesn't apply to them. You know, that yes, abuse can happen outside of the church by people who are worldly, by people who are sinful. But those kinds of things can't ever translate in the church because we have been set apart. We've been chosen by God. Mm -hmm. Well, so when, when sex comes to church, when abuse comes to church, when you're, when that frame of mind, when that frame of reference is challenged suddenly, you know, that it's not just bad people out there who abuse Mm -hmm. it, that it's actually people in our church doing that. It's actually our leaders, the people telling us about God, the people teaching us about what is spirituality and what is morality. These are the people we're relying on to teach us. And these are the people who are who are hiding sin, who are covertly, you know, not wanting to have to admit that it's taking place because that might somehow look bad on them or on their leadership or on their denomination. It, the, the problem at the end of it 
is 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 men's reputations and egos are really paramount in running the business that is mm. church church mm. has moved away from something beautiful and spiritual to nothing but a uh non-profit uh non-tax paying business entity that's able to you know use sacred language to extract money from your wallet all the while mm. telling you you're a horrible human being that needs to be saved and and in order to you know save yourself you must constantly be you know renewing your yourself constantly and so this this idea of of being able to confess your sins and well i'm clean now i'm back to being clean i can go on i can go on and you know sin another day it's this this concept of the free pass of the, the it's it's the entire indoctrination of some of those beliefs as well as some of the core beliefs of christianity that sacrifice is at the very core of christianity you know jesus was god's sacrifice so this concept of you know sacrificing a son is not you know is central is very central to the belief so sacrificing a, a, a kid in the process of saving the reputation of a church or some quote-unquote godly men is not outside of the church's you know operating playbook mm. because at all cost once you've been identified as a threat to that entity yeah. to that perfectness of the church when when you when you hold up that mirror and you say hang on a second it's not it's not you know these two things don't compute here sorry this doesn't make sense mm -hmm. then they're no 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 you're the problem you're the problem yeah. Right? Yeah. you're you're filled with demons you're this you're that so there's always this you know, you're not good enough. You're the problem. Oh, yeah, he's sexually abused a whole bunch of kids, but he, he said sorry. So get over it. Like the number of times I was also told that, get up, just get over it. Why can't you just get over it? And, wow. you know, people don't, like it has been, it has been now, uh, this year, it has been 40 years since I was sexually abused. Mm. 40. Yeah. And this summer um about a month from now oh. and um the fact that 40 years later this is still alive and very much a part of my daily existence is the proof that you can't just say to someone get over it yeah. there's there's a myriad of things if it was even possible to get over you know, but when but when you combat sexual abuse on its own would be enough to quote unquote get over or deal with oh, yeah. or somehow come to terms with. That is that is one layer on its yeah. own. When you overlay that with yeah. the language of spirituality and the control and the power that spirituality has in people's lives, especially Christianity in North America. You know, when you overlay that, then you have something that's really, truly quite twisted. And what I have observed over those 40 years is that men are more interested in protecting themselves and the stream of income and their reputations than they are interested in actually living the, living the love and the faith and the life that Jesus came to, to demonstrate. Yeah. And and you know i can only speak to it from the perspective of a childhood sexual abuse survivor i can only see how that has impacted my life in that 
in that way and that the effect that's had on my fate over the course of my lifetime. But there are other people who will have been harmed in, in different ways because that power is so powerful in someone else's life, it will impact their own personal experience differently. This is just yeah. how they impacted my own. But I, I, I believe, you know, that Christianity is something beautiful at its heart. But it is men's hearts that are not beautiful. And, and, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm, maybe it's wrong to, to, you know, um, highlight men in that particular case. But I, I think uh, there are some women who are abusers, yes, but those numbers traditionally are very, very low. It is, it is men who tend to be um, abusers. So, however, I'm still just so struck by your sentence of what you experienced at the hands of a direct abuser was um, not as harmful to you or not as impactful to you as what you experienced in the disclosure and post-disclosure process. I'm still just so struck by that. And maybe in your context, it was largely men who were on the leadership team. Maybe it was like holy men. Different churches have different roles for women. So it's possible. But I, I was raised in a system that had women at every level of the organization. And I would tell you that the abuse cycle that or the abuse system that I see actually is requires for it to stay in the darkness and thrive actually requires the complicity of everybody that in some way, shape or form, that's one of the reckonings that I'm going through right now. So I think you're right about the stats of direct abuse and statistically speaking, there are more men in leadership in churches and there are some churches that are 100% men but in the various stories that I have heard in my own observations and in my own experiences, this um, system that you're referring to that is like, dude, there is now so much evidence of what is happening behind that veil that it is we cannot any more afford. It is not healthy for us to just look at men and say this is a man's problem. This is the ability for this to have been remained in the darkness for so long and covered up and perpetuating and thriving is actually a thing that is going to take all of us to extricate, to bring out into the light, because abuse does not happen in a vacuum. It just doesn't happen in the vacuum. The cover up of abuse doesn't happen in a vacuum. There, I guess what I'm trying to point to is not scapegoating, not like giving a free pass to men by any means, but also to to continue to press the envelope of what advocacy looks like. So we may consistently see stats of the direct abusers being men predominantly. And yet, again, I keep coming back to your sentence of it's actually what happened at the disclosure and beyond the disclosure. And again, in your story might have male figures all the way through it. But what I know, and I think what we all actually know, is that there are people around, men, women, peers, you know, there are people around who have voice, who have eyes, who observe things, who have spidey senses. That's a, you know, they have, it's actually 
taking a lot more than just the people that sit at the board of directors to keep this thing and to have kept this thing in the quiet for so long. I, 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 I completely agree with you, but I think, I think that is what makes at least, at least in my particular circumstance. So all of the elders were men. There were some female pastors on staff, but they didn't sit on the elders board. Um, so the people making all of the decisions with respect to my story and what happened to it were all were all definitely men. Okay. Um, there were two women involved in my story. My mom was one, and the woman who um, got the story out of me in the first place. So uh, who, who sort of brought forward the disclosure as the other um, woman. But um, so the rest of the people in the in that in that story were were definitely men. And uh, they were more concerned, definitely more concerned about about each other and about mm. keeping this information very, very um, quiet. They and and these weren't these weren't circumstances that happened like like all of the choices they made with respect to how my situation was dealt with was minuted. Like it's all minuted in the in the elders minutes. So and my parents attended many of those meetings because I was not allowed to for whatever reason. Um, and, uh, you know, reported back to me what people had had said since talking about my story, other people have come to me and said, oh, you know, I heard this. Oh, I've heard that. Oh, I've heard this other thing. So people were actively talking about it, but it was being, you know, it was very much being managed. And those conversations were not, wasn't happenstance. Those were thought out, logical, reasoned decisions by the most spiritual men in the church. They knew what they were doing. They knew, they knew that they were trampling a, a boy to protect a grown man. And when, when, when at the time I was abused, the man was serving as a deacon at the church. But when it was disclosed, he was an elder at the church. Mm. So at the first disclosure, he was asked to not be at the meeting and that it was disclosed to act. And um, because as soon as he'd admitted to it, he was removed as an elder at that point. But that was really the only thing that the church did. And um, so he wasn't at any of the meetings about that because he was no longer an elder, but they sought very much to protect him. He was an Air Canada pilot. And as an example of the, the level of protection, there was another man on the board at that church who also worked as a pilot at Air Canada. Coincidence? I don't know. But he said to him, well, we can't make this public because if there's some kind of police investigation, then he could lose his pilot's license you know we can't we can't you know take away the man's ability to earn a living so the decisions as an example that conversation happened in front of my parents another man at the same meeting said well can we even can we even agree that peter was sexually abused because he said his own testimony says that he wasn't uh he wasn't penetrated in any way so 
since he wasn't penetrated, does it even count as these are the kinds of conversations that they were having at the elders meeting at this church. These were Mm. the types of decisions that they were conversations they were making their decisions. And so they were protecting a man's reputation and his ability to earn a livelihood while actively ensuring that a kid who'd grown up in that congregation who had been drinking the Kool-Aid for 18 years at that point had was was just sort of cast aside because he became the villain in the story instantly and the guy who was the problem um the guy who was the problem they circled the wagons around him because he was their peer and they couldn't believe that someone they'd served with on an elders board could be that duplicitous could be that you know could in fact be two people um you know the man that they knew as the elder and the spiritual man and then this you know guy who lived a completely different life right so you know and i think the real problem in churches and especially within leadership is that that and 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 this speaks to your what you just referred to this greater sort of complicity is that people cannot believe christians refuse to believe that heinous acts can take place in a church and be covered up. They do not believe that spiritual, God-loving, God-centered, God-focused people could act in a way that is so obviously evil and and yeah. you know calculated. And I, I think I think that is where churches really truly struggle. They they don't want to believe victims. They want to say to the victim, you're wrong, this could never happen because, you know, Joe Blow's been an elder or a pastor for 20 years and, you know, he's been known to save so many souls and he's like a light in this community and a pillar. He could never do such, a, but he did. Right. But right. he did. Right. So, you know, it doesn't matter whether you think Joe is capable of that. It's the fact that Joe not only is capable of it, but did it. Yeah. Now what are you yeah. going to do about it? Because that shakes, that shakes the foundation of that faith community. So if your first response, right. this yeah. brings me full circle, if your yeah. first response is to knock me back on your knees saying, what is the appropriate way to lead through this circumstance? Reality. How can I best yeah. serve this person who has been harmed? And how can we best help, if it's possible, the person who was the abuser? Those should be the questions, not how can we keep money flowing into this church and butts in seats, and how many lies do we have to spin to cover it all up so that we can look, you know, blameless and and holding it together instead of of that just being the the superficial, you know, it's the icing on the faithless cake, you know? Yeah, you're totally right. I come straight back to your definition of faithless that is lacking faith. Okay, that so is, that is a wedding cake. You know, back in the day, wedding cakes used to be made on, you know, you'd, you'd go to a wedding and there'd be like eight tiers and only one of them, you know, the little top one would be real cake. All the rest of them were styrofoam with ice. <laughs> that's what the church is now. That is what the oh, church is. Gosh. The church is a big, beautiful looking cake with absolutely nothing to eat. People are starving. They need, they need something outside of themselves to look to for support for love for encouragement to get through the day that's why people come to the church it's why they come to christianity that to have that stolen away from people is a bigger crime in my view than the sexual abuse crime the the 
the, the fact that a faith community could knowingly say, well, you don't count enough. So you don't matter to us. So you're, in fact, you are the problem. You're what's holding us back. You are the speed bump. So we're going to ride right over you. We're going to bump that bump. And then we're going to move yeah. sailing. And we're not going to look back. We're not going to look back oh. to see if you're okay or how you are. Yeah. So, and, and then, and then Christians wonder why people leave the church if they have those kinds of experiences with, with the people who are supposed to be the most yeah. faithful. So yeah. it's, it's, yeah. you know, I think, and, and it's why I also differentiated at the beginning between lady and, um, uh, and clergy, clergy, because thank you, because, because I think clergy bear a bigger responsibility than laity in terms of their moral authority yeah. over people's lives. But you, I, I take your point that for a kid, there is no difference from a kid's yeah. perspective. Yeah. But as an adult now, I still see that the pastors of that church had a greater responsibility yes. over yeah. my well-being than the man who sexually abused me. Okay. So even though, even though they considered him an equal on a spiritual level, you know, they were not, not, not the same. Yeah. Not, Okay, so in our last couple of minutes, I'd like, if you're game for it, you have shared with me at different times, because you've actually tried to disclose this multiple times in the last 40 years of like, hey, we still have a problem. This still hasn't been addressed. When you and I met, your request of the church, of the leadership of the church that where this had happened was stunningly simple. (laughs) I could not believe how simple your actual requests were for like how we deal with this. Um, so I'm, I, I know it's ever evolving because you are ever evolving in your own journey, your own understanding of your needs, your own understanding of the dynamics that are at play. So I'm just curious today as we record this, what would you like to see happen? And you can speak to that at any level of the story, at any point along the storyline what should have happened well what should have happened did happen because because i am the beautiful strong wildly outspoken man that i am because it happened and i would not be this Mm. person had it not occurred but that said because I have managed to pick up the pieces and find meaning in those circumstances doesn't mean that everyone has the capacity to do that or will ever reach that point within their, within this lifetime. Some people will go to their graves with that unresolved. What needed to happen was for the church to love me and not immediately treat me as a threat. The church needed to not ask, about details but ask well beyond the initial details that you need to know that a crime has been committed but beyond that um don't ask about details you ask what you can do to assist that person in their healing journey there was an opportunity for the church to turn me into a lifelong devoted christian through the demonstration of their behavior when faced with a heinous crime against a child yeah. the the 
the, my response to Christianity has been the opposite because, because of their response. I had to find faith some other place, um, you know, and I did have to deconstruct over a certain amount of time. But, you know, the church, sexual abuse happens in every environment, secular and spiritual, it doesn't matter. Sexual abuse happens in every organization. It's not that churches are more prone to sexual abuse, although they, they might be because of Sunday school and a few other things. Yeah. There might be reasons why uh, the church attracts people who are perpetrators. However, that's a whole other conversation. The, but the, the requirement, the, the, the church's requirement is to then, you know, to do the exact opposite of what they did with me. Getting the man, getting the man who abused me help was involving the authorities. Mm. That was mm. getting him help. It wasn't to try to cover it up and make sure that nobody ever found out about it so his reputation could stay clean, clean, quote unquote, but he could go on and abuse many, many more boys. Getting him help meant, you know, taking him out of work, taking him away from international access to children, maybe putting him behind bars, Maybe all of those things, which might have been the ramifications of telling the police, should have happened to that man. But yeah. but a group of godly men decided to act like God themselves and make that choice. Yeah. So instead of helping the man, they actually harmed the man yeah. by allowing him to continue what he was doing. And they harmed, they harmed, they did, you know, what the Bible warns very much not to, which is they harmed a child by turning around and blaming that child for the crime. Yeah. And then you know, essentially ostracizing that child. So, so, you know, sort of like lifting up the person who didn't need the lifting up, at least not in the way that they required it. Like I needed that kind of lifting up from the church and that kind of help, not the perpetrator. You know, I didn't need people dumping on me spiritual hocus pocus, like, oh, you're filled with, you're filled with demon. What, whether you believe in that or not, is not I'm not making a judgment call, but that is uh that is uh that is like that is very strong language to apply to a child mm-hmm. who when you consider the steeping of that environment from birth to 18, you know, there is a yeah. like child is gonna take what the pastor says. Those kinds of abuses ha- are able to happen because you've been groomed for 18 years. It's that about the church that I attended at least that makes me use the word cult like at times the the, the 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 community of silence the complicity that you referred to is because there's this cult like devotion to protecting the i don't think it's protecting the belief system i think it's protecting the business that okay. was that church okay. and the business leaders of that church it was about protecting them and so if church cannot take its focus off worldly things and acting in a worldly way and put it back on the, you know, they say they don't know what to do in in situations of spiritual and sexual abuse. Well, they do. All they have to do is get on their knees and open their Bible. It's not that complicated. God gave them a textbook. They want to sell it to everybody. They put it in every hotel room. Like, come on, you want to sell morality, then use your own textbook. That should be your go-to, not the advice of worldly things churches fail because in sexual abuse cases because they go immediately to lawyers which says to the victim we don't trust you you're mm-hmm. our enemy we don't want to work with you us against them us against them yeah. it's 
the church is always pushing this bifurcation of us against them. So if you're not with the church, you're always against the church. And so, so the church needs to, the church needs to learn that bad things happen within that environment. It's not so much that bad things happen. It's what we do about the bad things when they've happened. It's how we handle them. You can make mistakes in life. That's okay. People are willing to forgive you, but you've got to own up to it and you've got to take responsibility for it. I have approached this, as you said, uh, this is my third time now over the course of um, 36 years since the disclosure. And I have come at it each time because each time what I, the, the end result that I wanted, which was for the penny to finally drop and for the church to say, oh, we understand how we failed you and other victims. We understand how we have failed to help you through your pain, how we have failed as a church, how we have failed as Christians. We want to, you know, express our sincere, you know, regret for that. We want to ask for your forgiveness. We want to, you know, instead of that response, which is the response that they teach from the pulpit every yeah. Sunday, yeah. instead of that response, which would have calmed, could have calmed yeah. everything. You know, the thing that Christians fear most is being sued or a law, a lawsuit, the thing they fear. And so they do everything to avoid a lawsuit. The fact of the matter is 98% of victims would never sue a church. If the church just came to them repentant saying, you know what? We recognize now that we've heard your story, we recognize what we did wrong, how we harmed you, how mm -hmm. we added to your pain how yeah. we sinned against you and we're sorry and we're we're genuinely asking for your forgiveness and we want it. That healing is what needs to take place in churches between victims and churches. Yeah. Churches need to stop looking at victims as the problem and start seeing victims as the solution to their problem. Yes. Christianity truly needs to be saved from Christian leaders or it's going to be extinct. Mm. Truly because Christian leaders are the greatest impact to its effectiveness in people's genuinely in people's lives. Mm -hmm. Genuinely. So, you know, how to take a, how to take a, the greatest story ever told is not, you know, the story of Jesus birth. It's that the church has continued to act this way for so long and get away with it. And people, will not speak out against the church because they're so worried about retribution or worse, what that means to them eternally, what that means to their future. Yeah. No one, no one has the answers on earth to those questions. You know, yes. unless, you know, I mean, you, you, the Bible has a very specific outline for that and that's fine. <laughs> but you know, if you've had to divorce yourself from that faith base, because, because, you were treated in a way which was so counterintuitive to that faith base. If you've had to walk away from that, then you then you look at that, you know, what happens in the after you 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 have to disregard all of it. So all of that goes by the way. You have to reinvent every aspect of spirituality. And the church is doing itself a massive disservice. It's not the victims who are harming the church and harming God's reputation. It's church leaders who fail to actually do the right thing and live the love that Jesus came to teach. Yeah. So that is all really that I that in that has at least come from my healing. Mm. 
you know, my, my start of my healing process, I really was on, I wanted to attack the church and destroy it. Now I want to truly help the church heal, but I want to help it heal by showing it at least in one very specific aspect of its functioning, how it is failing. Yeah. And, um, you know, at least be able to start a conversation about that, that is not threatening, you know, yeah. um, it's inspiring actually as as someone who has adopted and attempts to walk out in actual literalness who desires to follow jesus and the beauty of the story that i see unfolding there to me when i hear you talk i'm inspired it reminds me why we need that story it reminds me of the high calling that i have adopted if i'm going to take that name on myself i mean i yeah, I, I'm following. I absolutely can observe the same things that you're saying about how victims are seen as threats. And so it's just, I just love the fact that you come to this conversation saying, well, I want to start a conversation in a non-threatening way. I am not attempting to threaten. And to me, it's inspiring. It is like, hold that mirror up. i like, please, Peter, continue to hold that mirror up. We need you. We need that um inspiration we need that challenge i would say and i know you don't want to be a challenge that is not your aim and yet we need it to to some degree i do like like in in sharing my story through book form i have i have written several different you know several different books now frankly but i'm working on one now that i think is going to appeal to you know, people have been through the Christian mill and come out the other side and said, yeah. have decided for themselves, I can't identify as this. But I'm also hopeful that it will be, because I'm hopeful that will be instrumental in starting a larger conversation within organized Christianity about, okay, why are, let, let's be honest about why people are actually leaving the church. Let's stop, you know, making up reasons why we think people are leaving the church, like they want to sin more or, you know, because making up crazy stupid things like that and actually face the reasons why people are leaving want to leave the church and then deal with those things before you just you know before there's there is no church left like let's do it while there is still some you know something to to say here but i i i do it is a high calling that people it's like marriage you know people uh enter into that very lightly because you know it's beginnings of relationships are fun and and <laughs> and easy it's not until later when they become more difficult and you go oh well is this what i really want anymore and christianity shouldn't be that you know you shouldn't be you shouldn't be joining you know first of all i don't think you should be indoctrinated into it at all i think religion should be a choice uh, given to a person and 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 the choice of paths should be up to the person it shouldn't be dictated but that's a whole sign Bar. Kids are smart enough. Kids are smart enough to be able to identify the difference between the truth and not the truth. But if you are, if if all you ever hear is this one version of your who you are, you know, as a, a you know, I'm an American or I'm a Canadian, I'm I'm white, I'm Scottish Irish, I'm like these stories all become parts of who we are. I'm a Christian. I'm you know, yeah. they, you know, and then you can't you 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 can't separate yourselves from them as opposed to you know. The joy of the faith that I have now is that although I had to find it through very difficult circumstances, I did. 
Mm-hmm. I did. Some of it is still very Christian based, I will admit. But um, I've had to come up with other terms. Like I don't use the word God, for example, when I refer to God, because that's just a very Christian word yeah. in my yeah. view. Um, you know, so there are words like that that I will I will have swapped out a word that is somehow less offensive to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, because because that's the way that I've been able to to make it through or how I've been able to survive, survive that. But truly, you know, this promise that the church made me as a child is the thing that I look at now and I think, okay, well, the church has failed to live up to that promise in all ways. And not just to me, but to generations of people. So, and in fact, has caused irreparable harm for many, many people. Um, So, I, I I think the church. I think this is a a moment in history where the church needs to take a very serious look at itself and see. You know, in business, we do. You know, we write mission statements and we. You know, we do strategic planning. Churches almost need to do strategic planning, not so that they can. You know, identify how much money they're going to have in the next five years or how many new congregants they're going to. You know, look to augment their congregation with but so that they can look at the things they want to achieve spiritually how they can you know be growing and changing and becoming more you know a church that people are talking about because it's different because it treats people differently because when you go there you know they're 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 it is fulfilling this promise that it has made to so many but has failed Mm -hmm. and left people instead of with answers more disillusioned than they then they began the process. So, you know, it's just uh, spirituality and religion is such a heavy topic that when it is overlaid on sexual abuse, that uh, the, it becomes such a such a big and pastoral clergy abuse. Like those things become so heavy when you put all of those layers on because it's not just ever one thing. It's not the abuse that took place in the pastor's office or the, 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 the comments made at the board meeting. It's the cumulative effect yeah. of those things. It's the yeah. cumulative effect. And more importantly, like why are men on those boards, for example, hiding that information or protecting perpetrators? Could it be that, you know, men who don't have moral authority to be sitting in those positions are actually making those decisions? So, so we're putting men in, we're putting butts in seats because we need butts in seats to run these nonprofit organizations by law. That's what we require. So we have to find someone willing to serve. Is it possible that we're not putting people in who are actually the most spiritually qualified, mm. but who put their hand up first and said, I'll do it, I'll do it. You know, churches are known for having 20% of the people do 80% of the work. So could it be that that is, that this is a, you know, the problem of the church is the structure, the functioning of it, how we view it. Yeah. I think it's time to sort of go back one of these issues at a time i'm only trying to focus on not the how the church manages its affairs as a whole but how it manages this very significant piece which in canada we're seeing quite heavily through you know news about the catholic church on an ongoing basis through what's happened to our own indigenous people in canada so all of which involves sexual and spiritual abuse so this is something that is very much ingrained into our into our religious structures, but it needs to be it needs to be very carefully 
weeded out and we need to honestly look at what's holding those roots in place so that we can get all of it out at once. Yeah. I could not agree more. And even as you say, you know, this is, I'm not trying to speak to all of it. I'm trying to speak to this one slice of it. The truth is there's so much inside of the slice of this that defines who we are in a much broader way. That is like, I don't know how you can even cast the vision of the larger thing if you don't get this slice right. And it has many different applications, many different applications that if we could get this slice right, it changes or or it re- actually rectifies the discrepancy between the overall picture and this slice. 100%. And then you might actually have a church that people start looking to and saying, I want now. That's yes. the kind of Christian I want to be. That's what I aspired to be when I sought this spiritual journey for myself. Yeah. That's what, I, you know, like, like I want the church to... I want to be inspired by the church for a change instead of the other way around. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Maybe edit that. No, no, I love that sentence. And on that note, actually, (laughs) and on that note, thank you so much. Thank you so much for such honest reflections, such courageous words. Thank you for sharing your story Thank you. I am deeply grateful. And there is a community, not of whom you know necessarily, personally, but there is a community here at Hager's Voice that deeply loves you and is so grateful that you are in our midst and that we are learning from you and that we get to walk out together and bear this load together. It shouldn't be on the shoulders of survivors. And yet here you are, voluntarily picking up a deep, deep burden on behalf of others. Uh, loving. This is you loving. Well, it is. it is because I recognize that I have a voice. I'm not afraid to use it. I'm not afraid to say things that people would find contrary or thought provoking. And yet many people who would have been raised in the same tradition that I was would find it very difficult to speak out or even admit that they were abused in the first place. So I, I, yeah. I find it helpful to be able to talk about my story, not because I um, am looking for pity or anything else. I'm not. I have well and truly dealt with the abuse in my life, but I have moved beyond the pain. I can now see the pain of the other side of the abuse, and I want to help. I, I do want to help churches who must feel completely overwhelmed and befuddled and baffled by, you know, what the right thing to do is and how quickly and, you know, all those kinds of things. Like it's, it comes as such a bomb to a faith community when something like this is disclosed. And sadly, instead of using it as an opportunity to grow and strengthen and develop as a faith community, too often these types of disclosures are destroying congregations. And I would like to see that not be the case there is a way through this that is spiritual and loving and kind it doesn't have to be you know uh heartbreaking and and disastrous um it can be something beautiful um and that's what i would really hope uh that churches would want as well for themselves because then then they really truly are the light that they ought to be instead of instead of just religious sounding charities which is all they appear to be at face value at least from an external point of view
reflect on the things that Peter says. I'm challenged by his critique of the church. But mostly, I am incredibly inspired and hopeful as I remember the possibility that exists in this moment of pain. It is so painful to see the the web of abuse that is being revealed, at least in the North American church. This is such pain. But as I hear Peter, as he calls the church to be what it always intended to be, that I see the unique opportunity that exists in the midst of this pain. And I am compelled by that. Church leaders, if you are listening to this, we are praying for you that also as you hear um, the voices of survivors, whether it's their story or their insight or their observations or their experiences, that you have that same sensation that I have right now, which is this blend of challenge and repentance and yet inspiration and a renewed love for the thing that it is that I have committed myself to of being a disciple of Jesus and the way that he sees the world and treats people and the work that he does and did in bringing the kingdom here. I hope you were blessed by today. Even if that blessing only comes in the form of challenge, I'm praying for you. We're praying for you. There's so much opportunity on the table for us as Jesus followers, no matter whether you're in church leadership or not, in this moment of pain. Survivors, if there's anything that Hagar's voice might do for you, I hope you will not hesitate to reach out. We are here for you. You are not alone. Thank you.